Welcome to Crisis Leadership, Coronavirus Edition, an original series and public service from Diversion Podcasts. Over five episodes, one of the world's leading crisis management experts, Dr. Charles Castor, takes what he has learned throughout his career and applies it to the coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic, preparing you to overcome the unprecedented hurdles of today and tomorrow. Crisis Leadership Coronavirus Edition is for leaders, for mentors, and for anyone who wants a peek behind the curtain at how our governments and large organizations handle or mishandle major crises. This is Episode 3, Never Too Late. I'm Dr. Charles Castle, safety consultant and researcher on extreme crisis leadership. This podcast mini-series discusses the commonalities in leadership between the Fukushima nuclear meltdowns and our current coronavirus meltdown. In this podcast, I'll discuss decision-making in an extreme crisis event. In an extreme crisis, leaders must use their wisdom and their experience to make sense of a situation. They must develop a shared mental model even in the face of uncertainties. They need to make decisions without essential information, and that is the biggest challenge a crisis leader can face. Lives depend on their moment-to-moment decisions. Of course, the leader wants all the information before making a decision. Too bad, that's not gonna happen. So how does a leader make decisions in the absence of perfect information? Let's look at that. From my experiences as an extreme crisis leader, I learned the importance of what I call anchoring decisions in facts, or validating the facts, you might say, because bad facts result in bad decisions. This is the most important thing during a crisis. At Fukushima, leaders acted on facts that turned out not to be valid. So you learn as a leader, when someone brings you a fact, you must interrogate the fact bringer and interrogate the fact. Where did the person get this fact? What was the source of it? Then you have to ask yourself, was this person driven by some motive other than a sound strategy? Might that motive be a form of emergency machoism, putting themselves at the center of the action? Governor Dick Thornburg, who was a former prosecutor, proved himself incredibly effective at this during the Three Mile Island accident. The governor knew how to interrogate a fact, ask where it came from, why it was presented, and most importantly, whether it was likely to be true. A good leader must make judgments about so-called facts. Let me give you an example. Governor Thornburg was faced with a decision on evacuating cities. There was speculation that a hydrogen buildup in the reactors could burn and cause a significant release of radiation to the environment. As he processed the facts, he found that evacuation plans for the two counties nearby the plant had serious flaws. Thus, he was faced with speculation of hydrogen versus the fact that the emergency plans were flawed. His decision was anchored on the known fact. He judged the known fact over speculation, so he did not order an evacuation. As a crisis leader, you must reach out to technical experts and others for information. However, you cannot let the experts lead the response. Time and time again, I see our leaders over-rely on experts 
to manage an extreme crisis. You might even say that about the medical people who seem to be leading the COVID-19 crisis. The Japanese leaders were paralyzed and misled by the nuclear academic experts who were too focused on the reactors and not focused enough on the big picture. So you can get focused on the technical, the medical, or the nuclear, and miss the big picture. Today, with COVID-19, there were some extremely wise and wonderful medical experts helping to guide the response, and that is essential, but they can't be leading the event. In COVID-19, the federal government role is logistical. Let the medical people work together with the states to devise a medical strategy and advise the federal leaders. However, our national response plan would have them have a seat at the table, but just not at the head of the table. FEMA is a lead federal agency for logistics. Also, never let the experts delay or impede your decision-making. Sometimes decisions must be made without the full picture. That's just part of the job. Leaders must keep pace with the changing situation, be prepared for unexpected challenges. They must innovate and adapt. And they must never lose their focus on what the mission is. Every decision must go through the filter of the mission. How will this decision aid the mission? How will I be able to measure the success of the decision? In the case of an extreme crisis, you cannot overcommit to one plan or another. We learned this the hard way at Fukushima. For Unit 1, the leaders devised a particular strategy and they stuck to it despite all facts indicating that the strategy wasn't working. It was too late to try a different strategy and the reactor building exploded. The trick is to never lose focus on the mission, but remain adaptable in your thinking. Hold on to a healthy skepticism about the process and continuously update your mental model and share that mental model with everyone and share the changes as they occur. What if our leaders are too optimistic, thinking, well, we can deal with this. We've got it. We're going to flatten the curve, then we're going to get to the other side of the curve. You hear all the talk about the curve and we're going to get to the other side. Well, that's not going to happen immediately. Nonlinear leadership means that you make decisions and you must think, and I'm oversimplifying this, you must think outside the box. You must do things and make decisions that we've never made before. You must get ahead of the event or the event will cascade. It'll get bigger and bigger and if you're behind it, it's extremely difficult to catch up. One of my favorite quotes of all time about decision-making is from General MacArthur. MacArthur said that all failures in war can be broken down into two words. Those two words are too late. Too late to bring in supplies. Too late to think about a change in strategy. Every loss in battle and every loss in war can be broken down into the fact that the other leader was too late. Nonlinear thinking is... We must be thinking way down the road, not just today. We have seen nonlinear thinking in the COVID-19 response with the use of malaria drugs and the enactment of the Stafford Act and Defense Production Act, if it's implemented. These are extremely great moves by our leadership. There remain many issues that we need nonlinear leadership on. For instance, with the number of ventilators available for hospitals, the ventilator people will tell you that they can ramp up the supply of ventilators. The problem is, we don't have enough people who understand how to use a ventilator. 
As an extreme crisis leader, nonlinear thinking is not only that I need ventilators, but I need to have someone working on qualifying people on ventilators. Another issue for nonlinear thinking is thinking about virus mutation. If the virus mutates or jumps to our pets, I thought I saw two reported examples of it jumping to dogs. This is scary as hell as far as I'm concerned. If it would morph, mutate, and become a different virus. Nonlinear thinking includes thinking about thinking, or what I call meta-thinking. Leaders must look down the road and ask themselves, what is the worst case scenario? And importantly, what decisions might I have to make regarding the worst case scenario? And then I need to organize the response or my system to be prepared to answer those questions. That's the key, to have the right information come to you when you need to make the decision. So you have to set up the structure ahead of time to gather the right data information to make the decision. Gain the information now to be prepared for future decision-making. Don't get me wrong, there have been significant successes in the worldwide response to the COVID-19 event. I do realize that South Korea is a small country, very different from us, but they seem to have found a strategy that's working. Their population is recovering. For starters, when they discovered a particular patient, now known as Patient 31, who was a super spreader, they tracked them down and stopped them from spreading the disease significantly. South Korean government was aggressive in sharing the data with their people, thus developing a shared mental model early. They had a shared mental model of the three T's, track, test, and treat. They could share that with the people. It was a simple mental model that the people could understand. By using the three T's, they had figured out where most of the cases had come from and had eradicated the spread of the disease. By contrast, if you look at the CDC website in the U.S., we've tracked less than 10% of the sources of the virus. I don't want to pick on specific actions by our leaders. I want to go back to the core idea. Our overall strategy must be to get ahead of the virus. Establish a valid strategy anchored in facts. Stick to it by not overreacting to invalid data or giving false optimism and share that strategy or that mental model with the public. If messages are inconsistent and emotional, it stokes fear in the people. That fear must be recognized, understood, and dealt with, not dismissed with false positivity. If we give people sound information that they can trust, they'll cooperate with the response. The bridge between having that mental model or that roadmap and having success is trust in leadership. At Fukushima, the key leaders there did a tremendous job of providing information to their workers. The sharing of information engendered trust and a sense of teamwork, that they were all in it together, and gave those who were risking their lives a sense of comfort. When they were told that it was safe to go back out into the plant and restore safety systems, they believed it because the leader provided them with facts, and information and a clear mental model. They saw that conditions were improving and that conditions were safe enough to re-enter the nuclear plant. Because of this, they re-entered the reactor buildings, did their job calmly and efficiently. To lead, one must be believed. 
As events unfold, people will constantly reassess their level of trust in the leaders. Perceived failures of leadership can result directly in the loss of trust and a loss of trust in the leader's decision-making. Research shows that there is a threshold of trust. For example, let's look at a normal office environment. There's mutual level of trust that we'll look out for each other, we'll help each other down the steps, we'll warn of tripping hazards, we'll show concern when someone doesn't feel well. However, if an active shooter comes into the office, our fight or flight intuition kicks in. At that point, trust becomes highly situational, basically self-preservation. If you're a leader in those life or death situations, people will immediately look at you for guidance. If you show weakness, panic, or uncertainty, or over-optimism, their level of trust in you will diminish. Research indicates that during an extreme event, there's a constant reassessment of your ability to lead. We've seen this with COVID-19, where early on the public trust in our leaders was low. Recently, as positive actions are taken, public trust has risen. However, there is constant reassessment. The public trust can reset very quickly. Building trust in times of mass uncertainty is difficult. Fundamentally, our leaders must keep calm. In the Fukushima case, there were several examples of leadership panic, but I've not seen that characteristic in the COVID-19 case. If anything, there's an underreaction by our leaders. In the next podcast, I'd like to talk about risk communications in an extreme crisis. Thanks for listening to Crisis Leadership, Coronavirus Edition, a Diversion Podcast's original series. Crisis Leadership was written and hosted by Dr. Charles Casto. Executive Producers, Scott Waxman and Mark Francis. Diversion brings real stories to life. Hear more engaging shows at diversionpodcasts.com. And if you're enjoying this show, check out this other great series from Diversion, The War Queens. Hi, I'm Emily Jordan. My dad writes military history, a history written by men about men. That is, until the day I asked him why he didn't write about women as war leaders. Emily, that's because nobody writes about wars from the perspective of women. Until now. Five years ago, my dad and I started looking into the stories of women who led their nations in wartime throughout history. These queens of swords have been winning wars for over 2,500 years, and they defeated some of the greatest male commanders in their day. As we look deeper into the rich history of women leading armies, Emily and I learned that each woman has a fascinating story to tell. Join us for fascinating true stories of powerful women waging war and teaching us lessons about power, politics, and inner strength.